Let's uh, pray together. Lord, I ask for your Spirit's help and presence in our time in your Word. I pray for the hearts of the people, um, that they'll be encouraged by taking a look at your heart, your affections for us. God, we love you. It is our heart's greatest desire to know you. Help us know you in this way, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I hope you've been with us for the last couple of weeks because we've been going through a series looking at the heart of Christ for sinners, um, specifically from the words of Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. I'm going to remind you of them again, where Jesus says of himself, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Here you find the only place that I know of where Jesus actually reveals his heart, how he feels or how he thinks about us and about the issue of sin and salvation. It has been a wonderful reminder for us and for me personally, um, being reminded of the promise of God that, that he promises peace and rest. Rest for your souls, he says in Matthew 11. In, in, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 7, a peace that surpasses all understanding that is the promise of Christ to us who trust in him. And here's the reality of it. That rest and that peace, that explains uh, so much when we see the heart of Christ, right? That it explains why he isn't repulsed by our struggles when we have them and, and repulsed by our sin. We've already seen this. We've already talked about this, but it's worth repeating that as our sin increases, his concern for us is revealed. It grows and grows as our sin grows. Not that sin grows to reveal the grace of God. That's what Paul says, let that never be. But the reality of it is, as we experience our trouble in life, his joy increases as he rescues and as he redeems and as he reveals and, and builds into us the image of himself. And that's a wonderful thought to, to remember that his joy rises and falls with our joy. It's not just at the moment that we're saved, which is clearly something I think most of us know. We experience it, that, that all heaven rejoices when we come to faith in Christ. But his joy increases as we navigate through our struggles in life, throughout our life, every day of our life. One of the Puritan writers influenced that perspective with these words. He said of the joy of Christ, he said, that the joy of Jesus increases to the degree that the sick come to him for help and healing. It's the whole reason why he came. How much more if the diseased are not the strangers, but are his very own children? So with us and so with Christ. He does not get flustered or frustrated when we come to him for fresh forgiveness, for renewed pardon with distress and need and emptiness. That's the whole point. It's what he came to heal. He went down into the horror of death and plunged out through the other side in order to provide a limitless supply of mercy and grace to his people. But there is a deeper point. Jesus doesn't just, just want us to draw on his grace and mercy only because it vindicates his atoning work. He wants us to draw on his grace and mercy because it is who he is. He drew near to us in the incarnation so that his joy and ours could rise and fall together. His in giving mercy and ours in receiving it. Christ gets more joy and comfort than we do when we come to him for help and mercy. 
I don't know about you, but I never, ever get tired of hearing that hearing that Christ is so for our joy that when we come to him with our concerns, our troubles, our sins, and our suffering, his joy rises to meet the need. To be honest, there's been countless thousands and thousands of sermons that have been preached about the heart of Christ, the affection of Christ for sinners, and we're going to keep preaching those sermons. That You can uh, never get to the bottom of that. But I think there's something that we need to consider and discuss today, and that is the Father's heart. Maybe this isn't uh, difficult for you to keep the connection between the expression of Jesus and the Father's heart together, but many people struggle to do that. Sometimes it's a little unclear for us to know the Father's heart. Sometimes there's a dualistic mindset when we consider him, right? The tendency to think of Jesus and the Father differently. You know, bad illustration maybe, but maybe you'll get this. Like the Father the Father plays the bad cop and Jesus plays the good cop. Jesus is grace and mercy and the Father is holiness and wrath. And they play two different roles and that's why you can cower at the Father and you're warmed to Jesus. There's a confusion in our mind. There's, there's things that we know and we believe, right? After all, we believe that God's wrath that is being stored up for sin and sinners that Paul mentions in Romans chapter two is true. It is true, but it is propitiated by the atoning work of Jesus. We confess that that Jesus stood in the way of God's wrath and bore every drop of it so that we could go free. But therein lies this little bit of a challenge. Just the picture of stored up wrath, right, makes it harder for some to see the Father is getting joy from giving mercy. Because after all, the way I picture stored up wrath is somewhat of a, in my, in my mind, it's kind of pent up frustration and anger, like just barely holding it back because he's so riled against all the knuckleheadedness of his people. I mean, that might be somewhat of a picture that we paint in our mind. And I understand, I truly do. It's not right, but I understand it. I understand it because it's the, it's the way the world works. And if we're honest, it's the way we work. It's the, it's the kind of flinches that we have. And I, I think it's the, the essence of everybody's flinches. I, had, I have every day consistent reminders how I'm not like him. This week I went to McDonald's. Don't judge me, but I did. I was in the drive-thru. And the McDonald's I went to has two drive-thru lanes. Well, guess what happens in two drive-thru lanes when cars are stacked there? People are not considerate. They don't keep in line. They're all trying to hustle in front of each other. And I found myself being really bothered by that. Didn't do anything, was bothered. When you watch the news, and I try not to watch it, but sometimes you can't help, right? It's the, the ultimate train wreck. You watch the news, and you see how the world reacts to sinful, broken things that it experiences. True, true problems, and they experience them, and then you watch the world react to those things only to watch its reaction and its response swing way past doing things right and better. And now they are using actually broken things to respond to the broken things that are hurting them. And it bothers me. When everybody is, uh, excuse the phrase, a loaded gun with suspicion and accusation and anger, seems like it's everywhere. I was just talking to a few guys today about all the videos people are taking in Costco just over wearing masks. And uh, to be fair, it bothers me. Now, if you're catching a pattern here, the pattern is I'm bothered a lot. All these things bother me. And sometimes I think to myself, oh, just let me, just let me lead for a week or two and, and I'll fix it. Um, but I don't think that for very long. 
because I just express the same frustration and anger and rage that everyone else does. And I would put everyone in the world on a permanent timeout. And, uh, and then you wonder why you're confused about the image of God. Because when I express my own, right, inconsiderate behavior, when I choose to use broken things to address the broken things I find in my own heart, when I'm suspicious of others or judgmental of others or lose my temper with other people, well then, then I'm waiting, right? I'm waiting at that point to experience, well, God, he's clearly gonna be frustrated and angry with me because I think something massively wrong about the Father. I think this mess that we're in affects his heart like it affects my heart, and it doesn't. It doesn't move the needle the same way for him as it does ours. Where mine might be total frustration and anger, that isn't the heart of the Father. And so that's what I wanna do in our brief bit of time today, is just take a look at the Father's heart and how it shares with Jesus his concern and his grace. There's another way to, to maybe ask the question, what is his disposition? Like, what is he naturally like? What does the Father normally feel and behave like? Um, we know and confess in our doctrine, in our teaching, the Father is holy, he's good, he's right, he's true. Yes, he does have wrath stored up for sin and sinners who will not repent. There, those things are all so true. And there are so many implications, so many so what's um, to be said regarding those truths that we confess. God is perfect in all of his attributes. But what's his heart? What does he really feel deep inside of him? Um, or as the writer of the book that we've been reading, Dane Ortland, says, what is he on the edge of his seat eager to do? I, I love the way that, um, that paints a picture for me. What, what is he eager to be busy about? And that's a question we want to answer. And I'll make it real simple and then I'll defend it, okay? Here's the answer. What the Father delights to do, what's most like him, what's most natural to him, what he's inclined to do, what he's sitting on the edge, quote unquote, of his bed ready to get busy with, it's to express mercy and love. That's what's most natural to him. I'm going to take you through several passages, um, and you probably can't keep up, but it, it, I'll just read them and make some points. They're very familiar passages, but overwhelming quantity of the description of the nature of God in his heart. Ephesians 2, one of the most, uh, most famous, most familiar passages of Scripture, by grace you've been saved. But just prior to that, the reason why grace is so profound and so wonderful for sinners is because of the condition uh, of our hearts in the first part of Ephesians 2. Let me just remind you. Here's what it says. Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived, once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Well, that's the, that's the scenario. That is the condition of our heart. And then Paul throws in the greatest, greatest sentence ever. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, 
made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved. What an amazing truth. The reason why, in spite of our sin and our deadness, the reason why we have hope is because God is by nature. His disposition is rich in mercy. Perhaps you remember even in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul, all these letters that are written to churches, particularly this one in Corinth, were instruction letters and confrontation letters. And 2 Corinthians is no different. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, before he says anything, any instructions, any corrections, he reminds them of something true of God, where he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. That's who he is. Another very, very familiar passage is the, the whole section of Psalm 103. The, the parts that we're familiar with is the, the realities that God so far, when he deals with our sin, so far removes our sin from us that it's described as as far as the east is from the west. That's probably how you remember it. Um, but before the, psalm, the psalmist gets to the sin and the iniquities and the transgressions that the father doesn't remember, that he f- separates us as far as the east is from the west, he tells us why. This is what he says, that the Father, the Lord, is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Psalm 86, again, a very familiar passage. David tells us what is the heart of God, the heart of the Father. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. And down a little bit farther, he says, but you, O Lord, are God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Over and over again, the scriptures are filled with statements of God's particular demeanor, his heart towards sinners, that he's full of mercy and grace and love. I want, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus uh, chapter 19 and then kind of keep a thumb there and get to Exodus chapter 34 because we're going to spend just a few seconds here in this passage is in these two passages as a way to remind us of this truth of his rich mercy, love, and steadfastness to us. Again, to get caught up in speed, Exodus 34 is is God meeting with Moses on the mountain uh, to make his covenant known to his people again. This is the second trip that God has taken with Moses and his people. Perhaps you remember the first one. In Exodus chapter 19, it was the first moment that God was revealing to Moses and therefore his people uh, what he wants from them, who he is. And this is how he lays it out in in Exodus 19 in verse 3. The Lord called him to him out of the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves shall see what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among the peoples, all peoples, for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And these are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. That is the first statement that God makes to to Moses to tell his people. And then he begins these long chapters of the Ten Commandments and all the law. This is the way it's supposed to work. Well, you know how that story finishes. Before all this law is brought to the people, the people are struggling, wondering where Moses is, and they long for home, Egypt, and this horrible scene where they build a golden calf and begin to worship an idol happens. All right, that's the first go around with this communicated 
what God has for his people. In Exodus 34, we pick up the second time that Moses climbs the mountain to hear from God his instructions uh, of the covenant. And this time, what God says sounds really different. And this is what he says. Verse 5 of chapter 34, The Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Here it is. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, or Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear, clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Do you see the difference here between the first testimony of God to the people of Israel in Exodus chapter 19 and now in chapter 34? Here's what 34 begins with. God brings to the people what their hearts needed to hear based on their rebellion to turn from God. Of all things God could say to Israel after the whole golden calf situation was to say, you need to know who I am. I'm merciful. I'm forgiving. I'm steadfast. I'm faithful. I'm true. I'm full of grace and mercy. I don't know how any of the people of Israel would have heard that, but that would have just melted me at that moment. Knowing what I've done, knowing who I am, that God would lean into his people then with a reminder of who he is, who his demeanor is, what he naturally is, that he's gracious and merciful. I want you to notice a couple things about this particular section. I first noticed that the there's a people that God won't forgive. It's mentioned in verse seven, right? He will by no means clear the guilty. In other words, the people who won't repent will not experience the graciousness of God or the mercy of God or the affections of God or the steadfast love of God. If there are people who stand their ground and say, it's not me, I'm not guilty, then you will not receive this mercy, this grace. This, this picture of him visiting this iniquity on the fathers and on the children, the children's children, is just this idea that discipleship works. And if kids take up the cause of their fathers and don't change the direction that they were taught, they too will be in a condition where they won't be repenting. They will not see their sin and they will rebel against God. The bottom line is that to all who, all who repent, the heart of Christ, the heart of God is on display here. That he is compassionate towards them to see and to care. Now, there's five expressions in this passage of the Father's heart. I want to just mention them again. He says that he's merciful and gracious, that he's slow to anger, that he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, that he's keeping steadfast love for thousands, that he's forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Let me just suggest that you use the last four statements to explain the very first statement of his mercy and graciousness, right? So here's the how. How is this merciful and graciousness defined by the other parts of this statement of God's character. First of all, it says, because the Father superabounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. You've heard us say these things in different ways, but just think about his love being tenacious, unstoppable, flowing from an endless resource. There have been times where, I mean, just recently, I think about three years ago, we were in Alaska at the Tenalian Bible Camp, and we went for a hike to the I don't even remember the name of the river, the big river. It's, a, it's full of rapids. And I'm standing there on the edge of this river. I never consider that there's a source somewhere to all this water. It just never stops. 
It roars and it roars and it roars and it roars every minute of every hour of every day of every month of every year. It never stops. And as much as that looks like an unending, un, like limitless supply of water, the, the mercy, the grace of God, the steadfast love and faithfulness of God has way more resource than even that river in Alaska. It's, it's unending, it's limitless. He goes on to say another reason how he's so merciful and gracious, and that is because he's slow to anger. Some have described it as not having a hair trigger, and I, I love that picture because I can relate to that. Someone once said that love cannot last where anger has a hair trigger. Like love just dissipates when that happens. If God was like that, if he was quick to anger, well, you and I wouldn't survive the next minute of our lives, let alone deal with eternity. His patience is perfect patience. He's truly slow to anger. The text goes on and says that the Father is steadfast in his love, which is what makes him slow to anger. The, the word, uh, you've heard us use this many times, steadfast love is hesed love. It's a Hebrew word for love. And it's, it's, it's so profound in its width and its depth that most translators have a hard time finding word or a couple of words to kind of truly paint the picture of what it is. Some have defined it this way. It's a love and it's a loyalty that inspires merciful, compassionate behavior towards someone. And that helps, but sometimes like biblical illustrations make it even clearer. I'm going to remind you of a story that's mentioned in 2 Samuel chapter 8 and 9. Just some backdrop to the story. David is king, but David's pre-king days were interesting in that he was, he was called out by God to be king while Saul was still king. And all the tension that existed between Saul's insecurity and David's future were at play in this whole passage. And in, that, in the midst of all the things that God was doing and using David to defeat the Philistines and fight the battles of God's people, Jonathan, who was Saul's son, saw David. And the text just makes it really clear that his heart went out to David. Like he saw some things in common that he shared with David, that they were both very strong, principled men who believed in God and their hearts were knit together. They loved each other. And they didn't know during this battle season if anybody would survive or who would survive. So they made a pact with each other that, that whoever lives, whoever survives this season, will make a promise to each other's descendants that we will love each other forever. That kind of hesed love thought. Well, we know what happens to Jonathan. Him and Saul both die in a battle. But then fast forward to this Second Samuel chapter 8 and 9. David is the king, and he's done what kings have done. He goes to battle, he wins wars, and he establishes his kingdom, and he brings peace to a people. And he's starting to think and to consider, well, what other things can I do to be a good king? And then he stops and he says, well, I remember the promise I made to Jonathan. And he asks some very poignant questions. Is there anybody of Saul's family, of Jonathan's family, that I can fulfill this promise to. And there's where this character comes into play, this person named Mephibosheth. And the reality is that Mephibosheth's story is pretty brutal. In, in the moment where uh, King Saul and, his, and Mephibosheth's father, Jonathan, were in a battle and they died. The text tells us that a nurse picked up this young child, Mephibosheth, and tried to run to escape because after all, if the king dies, they come after descendants, right, to destroy any future threat. And the, the nurse trips, the text tells us, and cripples the boy. He's spent his whole life now. He's no longer a king's son at all. 
he's crippled and he's without. David considers, what can I do to fulfill my promise? And someone tells him about this boy that Jonathan had. So the text is really clear that David goes about fulfilling that promise. And it's interesting, in the promise that, the, uh, that he fulfills to Jonathan and ultimately to Mephibosheth, is that he takes this crippled, uh, fearful um, young man and he brings him into his court and he brings him into his table. And there's some wonderful word, like word pictures here that bringing him up to the table um, is covering over his shame, which is a wonderful way in which how God deals with our sin and that he ultimately provides for him. He takes all of the inheritance that his grandfather Saul had, all of his provisions, all of his land, and he gives it to Mephibosheth, making a provision for him. So he, he provides for his brokenness. He covers up that. He covers up his need with that graciousness. And, and let me just tell you, in, in the passage in 2 Samuel, there are three uses of this hesed love that David uses, again, to describe this kind of heart for this promise. And he says, is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness? There's that word, hesed, for Jonathan's sake. A little bit farther down, he says, is there not still someone at the house of Saul that I may show the kindness or the hesed love of God to? And then ultimately, when he meets Mephibosheth, David said to him, do not fear, for I will show you the hesed or the kindness of love to you. You have a wonderful picture here of the Father's hesed love for us. In fact, the text says that the steadfast love of the Father. It's permanent. It's loyal. It never forgets. It covers our shame. It provides for our needs. The love of God isn't just a feeling. The love of God is massive action, eternal action. He loves us before the foundations of the world, and he makes a promise to finish the work that he starts in us. From beginning to end, all that we need comes from his heart, his hesed love heart to care for us in those ways. Let me just finish with a couple other things. How is the Father's heart merciful and gracious? <laughs> well, if we go back to that passage in Exodus, and, and this is where some of the translations I don't think do it justice, because it says in here that, he, that he's keeping steadfast love for thousands. The picture that's painted when you think of thousands, that his love is pointed at people, and so you go, well, the subject of that sentence is thousands of people. Well, that's not what it says. The text actually is referring to thousands of generations. So the, the subject of the sentence has nothing to do with the thousands of generations. It has to do with the eternal promise of God. Thousands of generations just means forever and ever and ever and ever. And when you're done with that sentence, you do another one and then another one. God's love never stops. He's faithful to thousands and thousands and thousands of generations. He makes promises and he finishes those promises. One last thought. How does the Father's heart um, reveal his mercy and graciousness to us? It says here in the text, by forgiving iniquity, transgressions, and sins. And if you read that for the first time, you go, why does he do triplicate there? Why doesn't he just say sin? Why does he use three separate words that basically say the same thing? Why does he say iniquity, transgressions, and sins? And some smarter than I have made the point that there's triplicate there to make the statement firm within our hearts to remind us that there's not a sin, there's not a type of sin, there's not a frequency of sin that's beyond God's forgiveness. Now here's where this really intersects with your heart. 
because we just gin up constant reasons. And I told you this last week, constant reasons why, well, God should be done now. That one, that, that particular struggle, that's the wrong one. Hear it from his own heart, that his heart, his steadfast love is forgiving of our iniquities, our transgressions, and our sins, anything and everything that you think is the reason why he shouldn't love you, he continues to love you. And why does he forgive like that? Well, it's where we started. Because he is merciful and because he's gracious. That's why. One, one other reminder, one other passage, Lamentations, we don't need to go there, but Lamentations is the writer's response to the destruction of Jerusalem after God calls out to the prophet Jeremiah to tell the people of Israel clearly that you're in sin, you're, you're not worshiping me, you're, in, you're just broken. And Jeremiah does that message, but the people don't listen. They continue on their same course. And God brings judgment to Jerusalem, and, and Jerusalem is taken over, and what's happening in the city is just brutal. In, in Lamentations chapter 3, he makes this statement, and what he does is he reveals even the Father's heart in that statement. He says this, For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. You had the occupation, the, the, the taking of the city, and the destruction of the city. And all of that true, true as it is, is the reflection of God's judgment on sin. You see there, ultimately, you have the consequence of that sin, and you also see the evidence that God takes sin very seriously, that he will judge sin. But still, after all of that, here's what he falls back on. Yes, God does bring judgment, but God does not, right, afflict from his heart. Perhaps you'll remember the most familiar passage of this Lamentations chapter 3. This is what he's considering. This is what the writer is considering about the heart of the Father. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Now just picture that statement being said in the midst of suffering, suffering that is the consequence of sin, and it is the action of God to bring correction to his people. Discipline, yes. Trouble, yes. But it isn't coming from his heart. That's what Lamentations 3.33 says. So let me, let me just end with this. To those of you who might be sitting here this, today and questioning his mercy, because you can only see it through your life, and your life's been very hard, difficult, major letdowns, trouble all the time, things that have been unfair, things that haven't been just to you. And you question, well, how could God be merciful? My life is terrible. Well, then I want to remind you to look at the cross. Everything you need to know about the mercy of God, the grace of God is on display in the work of Jesus, right? Mercy was misunderstood. Mercy was mistreated, mercy was betrayed, mercy was ridiculed, mercy was beaten, and mercy was brutally murdered. So whatever your life is, I'm not diminishing it, but if you want to really understand mercy, you have to really see Christ and his suffering. One other group I want to say this to, to those who feel like you've wasted it, like you knew this, that you had this story, but your life continues to be a self-perpetuated harm, you know? 
like you, you are struggling because you've wasted mercy. Well, then I want to use a sentence that Ortland uses in his book. Do you know what God does with those who squander his mercy? He pours out more mercy. Why? Because <laughs> the Father is rich in mercy. Listen to this. That God is rich in mercy means that your regions of deepest shame and regret are not hotels with which divine mercy passes, but, but homes in which divine mercy abides. It means the things about you that make you cringe most make him hug the hardest. It means his mercy is not calculating and callous like ours. It's unrestrained, flood-like, sweeping. It means our haunting shame is not a problem for him, but the very thing he loves most to work with. It means our sins do not cause his love to take a hit. Our sins cause his love to surge forward all the more. It means on that day when we stand before him quietly, unhurriedly, we will weep with relief, shocked at how impoverished a view of his mercy heart, rich mercy heart, had truly been. Let's pray together. Father, I confess, um, we confess as your people that we have very small views of your heart. From time to time, we get a little snapshot and then some struggle, some situation, and it just flitters away. God, so today, just looking for this brief, brief moment at how your heart is rich in mercy and steadfast in love and gracious to us. God, I pray it, that your spirit would just press it into every fiber of our being, that we would understand maybe today in more profound ways than ever, ever before, how deep and how wide and how great is your love for those who fear you. God, we love you today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Nothing could be more appropriate after just being reminded of his forever steadfast hesed love for us would be when we grab these elements like we do every week and we do what Jesus commanded the church to do, to remind ourselves when we gather of his sacrifice. The most perfect picture of this faithful love is in the body that was broken on the cross for us. Jesus says to eat this to remember. So let's eat together, church. The blood, the atoning blood, the blood that satisfied the righteous wrath of God, the blood that took all the punishment, that settled all the issues between the Father and sinners, the one that made us his children, this covenant of grace, let's drink to remember. Let's continue in our worship and sing to him. <clears throat> 